is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenevec. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern Time on Bloomberg Radio. Or watch us on YouTube. Search Bloomberg Global News. Pfizer, that uh, human safety testing, they begun for a new pill to treat the virus that could be used at the first sign of illness. You've got the head of the WHO calling recent increases in deaths and cases, quote, truly worrying trends. The the kind of back and forth we see, Tim. Yeah, we're seeing a lot of good news when it comes to treatments and vaccines, but we're seeing bad news when it comes to the numbers still going up. And then countries like Germany putting in stricter lockdown measures in place starting in just a few days. And AstraZeneca, its own starts and stops, if you will. They said they're going to release up-to-date results from the final stage trial of its vaccine within 48 hours. They're really responding to criticism from a U.S. Uh, science agency. So let's get our daily check on all things COVID. Back with us is Dr. Seth Letterman, co-founder, CEO, chairman of the New York-based specialty pharmaceutical and biopharma company, Tonics Pharmaceuticals. He joins us on the phone in New Bedford, Massachusetts. Dr. Letterman, nice to have you back here on Bloomberg. How are you? Great. Thank you very much for having me on. So tell us, um, we want to get into the work that specifically you guys are doing, but tell us about the AstraZeneca vaccine specifically and this Pfizer maybe having a new pill to treat the virus uh, at the first sign of illness. Um, when you hear about that, you think what? Well, the, vac- the AstraZeneca story is really unprecedented. It's unprecedented that the a data safety monitoring committee would raise an alarm publicly, and it's just unclear what happened. So I think we all have to wait and watch over the next 48 hours. But I think that the trouble they're having is also a testament to how incredibly well the Pfizer, Moderna, and J&J programs went. If you think about the complexity of these trials, tens of thousands of people, data coming in, the public clamoring for information, and uh, that this is really the first big glitch that we've seen is really uh, remarkable. Although I, I really don't know what more to say about it, though, except that coming on the heels of the other problems that AstraZeneca has had, it does seem to be eroding confidence in in their effort is that erosion of confidence warranted though because we do talk to a lot of people who follow this closely who who say that the data still show that this looks like it's going to be and already is an effective vaccine i think it's a challenge for them to to get everyone's confidence back but i i hope that they will because certainly on the range of numbers that are being reported by outlets like the washington post between 69 and 79% seem like a vaccine that should be out there and could be helping people. Hmm. Yeah, exactly. Well, and you guys are working on your own vaccine as well. Tell us where you are on that process. It's a little bit different um, than some of the ones that have been put out there already, but get us up to speed on that, if you would. Thanks. We're working on a, on a vaccine that's based on a live virus vector. Mm-hmm. We call it TNX 1800. And live virus vaccine vectors induce a stronger immunity and a T-cell immunity. So we're hoping that the current vaccines that are EUA authorized will solve the problem. But if they don't, we will be out there in phase one, we expect this year, and hopefully in efficacy trials next year. 
the reason that we are still charging forward is it's an unanswered question about whether the three EUA vaccines will provide durable immunity. And uh, we, we think that stimulating T-cells strongly has the potential to provide that kind of durable immunity. We talked about this, Tim and I, with you last time, because this is the distinction. Because I think every time you come on, I'm like, well, why are you guys still pursuing your vaccine? But it is a different, you know, it's longer term protection um, from the virus. And when remind us, when you talk longer term, what does that mean specifically? Are we talking years or tell us? Yeah. Yes, years or decades. Mm -hmm. And and there are two phases of COVID. One is we have to extinguish this pandemic. And it seems like there's great potential for the EUA vaccines to to make strides. I'm halfway through my Pfizer vaccine protocol. I urge everyone to get vaccinated. I think that these uh, three vaccines are great. But I think that we also have to think longer term, that COVID will be endemic. So we have to think about children being born in the future into a world where COVID is endemic. And I, I believe that COVID vaccination will become part of childhood vaccinations. So, for example, the MMR vaccine, mumps, measles, rubella, is a live virus vaccine, and that provides years and decades of protection. Hey, Dr. Letterman, to that end, what 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 place do you think treatment has? Because Carol and I just talked about uh, this Pfizer pill, uh, that is Pfizer's testing a safety of a new pill to treat the coronavirus that could be used at the first sign of illness. And we have about 40 seconds left. It's very exciting. Um, I think that now you're seeing that, you know, even with the vaccinations, we're going to be rumbling along having cases and serious disease and unfortunately continuing mortality. So I think it's wonderful. It's a new it's a new approach. It inhibits a viral enzyme. And I think it could uh, complement what's available with remdesivir from Gilead and, uh, you know, the Eli Lilly and Regeneron antibodies. I think that's a very important area for continued development. Um, Dr. Letterman, Something I'm, we're curious about is you guys are working, as you mentioned, uh, specifically on your TNX 1800 vaccine. Uh, it's different. It's about T cell immunity. And you still think that because COVID will be endemic, that we're going to need tools like this going forward. Is there a point, though, that you look at COVID or the virus and you say, wait a minute, you know, we can't keep developing this or it's not going to make sense? Is there a point where you do that? And I bring it up, too, because I think um, investors are pretty excited about your stock. I mean, it's up more than 100 percent this year. Thank you. There, there may be a point, but we're certainly not there yet. I think, as I mentioned, the EUA vaccines are certainly taking some of the air out of the tire of the virus. But we do need to have durable protection. And one of the things we really don't know is how much immunity is out there. It's easy to measure antibody immunity, but it's hard to measure T-cell immunity. And that's why one of the other programs we have is a skin test to look at T-cell immunity. It's very similar to the PPD test that is used to measure exposure to tuberculosis. But I think that our tool, maybe other tools, they could see how many people have T-cell immunity could give us a better idea about the amount of immunity in the population and, and either confidence or less confidence in, in whether there will be a spike after all this spring break travel. So where are you in, in development of that and bringing that to market? Well, we just had a response from the FDA on our um, development 
expect to file the IND in the second quarter and to be in clinical trials in the third quarter. So what would that mean as far as when there could potentially be? Is this the type of thing that they would do emergency use authorization for? Or is this the type of thing you could bring to market, you know, 100%? We would hope for emergency use authorization, but I think that that will also depend on where the country is in terms of the COVID situation in in the fall and spring. But I think that that's a decision that FDA will make. Uh, We'll we'll certainly ask for it, but they'll have to make that determination. Do you feel like in general the U.S. is doing a lot better when it comes to getting control of COVID? And I do wonder, though, does it none of this matter unless we everywhere around the world, we get it under control, basically? The U.S. is doing a great job in making vaccine available. It is really remarkable. I think that Operation Warp Speed is almost equivalent to the Manhattan Project and Mm -hmm. the speed in which these vaccines came out. And we're all lucky, I think, at how um, effective the three EUA vaccines appear to be and the impact they're having. The problem is that it's hard to keep Americans at home. And if you look at the lockdowns in Germany and Ireland, Italy, um, it makes me almost envious that the government could control people that way, but obviously that's not an option in the United States. So I hope that people would uh, just wait a few more months till we, till we reached higher numbers of vaccinations uh, before they went on vacation travel. But obviously, it's a, as they say, a free country and nobody asked me. <laughs> so I think now a lot of vaccine experts are just cringing, waiting to see what will happen in the coming weeks. Doctor, you're one of those vaccine experts. What do you think will happen in the coming weeks? It's hard to tell because we don't know, as I say, the I call it the denominator. How many people really have been exposed? How many people had asymptomatic cases, didn't know about it, uh, you know, wrote it off? A lot of people aren't aware that you can have gastrointestinal symptoms only. And since that's not common knowledge, that, that could result in them being immune and, and not even thinking in their minds that they had it. Um, you know, the antibodies fade over time. So someone who might have been sick in, in March or April would be antibody negative now, but still have T cells. So I think it's a big, mm. a big unknown. I'm cautiously optimistic, but, um, you know, what do they say, uh, watch what I do, not what I say. I'm certainly saying uh, hunker down until a lot more is known. Really quick question, 15 seconds. If you have, if you have COVID, do you automatically develop T cells? Just quickly. Almost everyone would, unless okay. they had some kind of immunodeficiency. All right, good to know. Always learn something. Dr. Seth Letterman, thank you so much. Co-founder, chief executive officer, chairman of Tonics Pharmaceuticals, joining us on the phone from New Bedford, Massachusetts. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic from Bloomberg Radio. Coming up in the new issue of Bloomberg Business Week, it's out later this week, uh, online and on the Bloomberg right now, reporting on how the unemployment system is plagued by $63 billion in fraud and dysfunction. Uh, Tim, those are real numbers. Yeah, they certainly are. And Joel Weber is the editor at Bloomberg Business Week, joining us on the remote from Brooklyn. Olivia Rockman is U.S. economy reporter at Bloomberg News, joining us on the phone from New York City. Carol mentioned it, Joel. Billions of dollars <sighs> lost to fraud. Yeah, it's... A- it's, it's a big number and it's all the more concerning because it's happening 
in a in a space that you know we have um, millions of people who remain uh, vulnerable. And when you see this much money seeping out the sides and the dysfunction that accompanies it, it it's cause for concern. So so Olivia, can can you help uh, dive into this story and and tell us what you were able to find out through your through your reporting? Yeah, and just a note on that sixty three billion number. That's actually a backward looking figure. And so. You know, now that Biden has reinstated unemployment through September, we're just going to see that figure continue to grow as more people apply and as the system continues to be available. So how come it's so bad? One of the reasons is that the unemployment application systems that are administered by states are just websites. And so anyone in any country can simply apply online. Another issue is that the Pandemic Unemployment Assistance Program, which was launched as part of the CARES Act for gig workers and self-employed workers, doesn't require an employer verification. And so a lot of people, either in foreign countries or in the United States, have been applying with the hopes that they get through without that extra step. So what do we know about where this money has gone? And is there any chance that the U.S. government can get it back? Because this has real consequences, because this is meant for the American people, people who need the money. Right. We spoke with some security experts who have been working with states, and they mentioned that there are major crime rings coming out of Nigeria. Some federal inmates in United States prisons have been able to apply and get money, as well as people in countries including Japan, uh, countries in Africa, countries in Europe, etc. So it really is coming from all over the place. In terms of getting the money back, it seems to us right now that the real effort is in prosecuting the criminals that they found, but not as much about getting the money back currently. So, so many of the problems here also arise from the, the federal kind of state interactions. And so what, what are state unemployment offices doing to combat this threat? Right now, states don't have a ton of resources at hand, other than that some have hired security firms to do additional verification to try to keep fraudsters out of their system. But that said, what happens when you have these extra processes is that Americans who do qualify for benefits and actually need them often get lost in that system. Um, so it's sort of a lose-lose situation right now. So, Olivia, you got to talk about some of the crazy stuff you came across in doing this story. Um, people wearing masks to kind of get benefits. You talk about, uh, I guess there's a case you talk about in Nevada last year where there was something like 1,700 claims to a single home address. Tell us about some of the crazy stuff you came across. Yeah, so on that point about the mask, some people that have applied for benefits and then have to go through an online video process to verify their identity, who are fraudsters, have been 3D printing fake faces that they wear on these video calls to appear to be the person that they're impersonating, which was shocking to me. What about the people doing this from prison? So prisoners are actually submitting their identification cards, their inmate identification cards as their driver's licenses and some of them were able to get through just using that that's but, the extent of but what they wouldn't qualify is what you're saying they shouldn't qualify right but you know they're getting through the system yeah so Olivia, when you step back from all this i mean it, it feels rather existential like we need we have millions of people who need this money um even if it's a sieve at least some of it's going there like how are we how are we going to look back on all of this do you think So one thing in terms of good news is that Biden's 
latest stimulus bill, the American Rescue Act, allocated about $2 billion to states, um, divided among states, to address in part fraud. And so that may help in the coming months sort of alleviate some of the stress that the states are facing. But overall, this, you know, this really becomes a taxpayer issue. And, you know, Americans are going to have to foot this bill if the government can't recoup the dollars. Well, and I think the other thing is, too, um, what's interesting about this story, what's important about this story is we have talked about it so much leading up to the massive stimulus package being passed and talking about the importance of this money getting into the economy, consumers having access to it, Olivia, to spend and to help out with the recovery. I mean, there's there's lots of moving parts to this, but you know, that's what we're kind of counting on to get this economy uh, continuing to be on track. Right. We talk so much about retail sales and consumer spending driving their recovery. But when we have examples like in this story, a couple we spoke to who couldn't get their unemployment insurance because they were flagged for fraud, even though they weren't criminals, um, that just holds back, you know, the entire economy as well. Hey, you mentioned the, that this is a backward looking number. What do we have to keep an eye on with the, the pushing through of the one point nine trillion dollar stimulus plan to, to see if any of the changes that have been made to better secure these funds are actually working? Right. So there's a government body called the Office of the Inspector General, and they've been putting out reports every couple of months on the estimated amount of money that they think is fraudulent. And so, you know, as we continue to see this money go out, we we will, on our side, keep looking at these reports and seeing if they've kind of noticed the percentage of of total dollars um, being paid to fraud go down or change at all. Right. I mean, listen, it's a massive system already kind of, you know, strained. And then if you've got to go after fraud claims or fraudulent claims, uh, and a lot of them, I can just imagine how difficult it is for the system to get on top of it. Uh, thank you so much. Olivia Rockman, that's our story. U.S. economy reporter at Bloomberg News on the phone in New York. Joe Weber, editor of Bloomberg Business Week on the remote access from Brooklyn. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic. From Bloomberg Radio. Great to have back with us uh, Joseph Stiglitz. He is co-chair of the Commission on Global Economic Transformation at the Institute for New Economic Thinking, Nobel laureate economist, Columbia University professor of economics, author of numerous books, including People, Power, and Profits. Professor Stiglitz is joining us on the phone in New York City. Professor Stiglitz, great to have you back here on Bloomberg Radio. Um, let's talk about, first of all, this report that you and the team at the Institute for New Economic Thinking have put out. And this is a about dealing with the pandemic and the importance of it being a global effort and one that takes care of the developing world. What are you seeing currently, though, that warranted you and your team coming out and putting out uh, this missive? Well, uh, the, the key point is that, that uh, the developing countries, particularly in emerging markets, are uh, not uh, on track to have the kind of uh, light at the end of the tunnel that we're beginning to see in the United States. Uh, in two uh, distinct areas, uh, we're getting vaccinated. Uh, President Biden talked about July 4th being our day of independence from the, mm-hmm. from the uh, COVID-19. And there are many, many countries, as we document around the world, that have not had a single vaccine. They just can't get access. Uh, They can't afford it. Uh, And one of the points we make is that that supply constraint is in part artificial. Uh, The second thing is the United States has spent uh, approximately $17,000 per capita, 24% of GDP, uh, on uh, 
the Economic Recovery, the Rescue Act, uh, combined with the CARES Act that was passed last uh, spring and the December bill, um, the developing countries are spending a fraction of that because they just don't have the money. Uh, they're spending on average somewhere between $2 and $17 per capita. Compare that with uh, $17,000 in the United States. Professor, let's start with the recovery when it comes to vaccinations around the world and then get to, to economics in just a few minutes here. But obviously the two are intertwined. I got to ask, you know, when it comes to this virus, the way that we're looking at it, I think so many Americans look at it from a perspective of where they live, right? In their neighborhood, yeah. who, who they're around, in their city. And those are the statistics that they're looking at, how easy it is to get them a vaccine. Make the case as to why we should take a global approach and why we're not out of the pandemic until the world is vaccinated. The, 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 the real reason, one of the real reasons we ought to be concerned is this virus uh, seems particularly successful in mutating. And as long as it's mutating, as long as it's flourishing in any part of the world, and uh, the longer it flourishes, the more mutations, some of those mutations are going to come back and, to put it, you know, bite us. Uh, we don't know when and we don't know uh, how bad it will be. Will be will those mutations be uh, more um, contagious, more deadly? Uh, will they, uh, we just don't know. So we are at a very big risk of letting this uh, virus just basically flourish in some parts of the world. And listen, not apples to apples, but Professor Stiglitz, you know, coming off of the financial crisis, I think we learned hopefully a lot in terms of we thought this was going to be developed, you know, the developed world thing. We saw it really spread around the globe uh, in terms of the crisis. Is there something that we can or should have learned from that crisis that we can carry over to this crisis in terms of its impact globally? Well, you remember in that particular crisis, uh, the G20 was founded on the basis of the recognition that we needed to have a global economic recovery. Uh, Gordon Brown, who was the prime minister of the UK at the time, was particularly forceful. He pointed out that if uh, one country is doing well, it helps its neighbors, and if it's doing poorly, it hurts its neighbors. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've lost an enormous number of jobs in the export area because of uh, the global slowdown. So it's just in our own self-interest that there be a, a strong global recovery. Uh, and certain sectors, of course, if we don't have a slow, a strong recovery, they, they just won't be able to get back on their feet. So that's, uh, on the economic side, why it's so important for this to be a global uh, recovery. Back in 2008-9, China played a very big role in that global economic recovery. Uh, it grew really uh, very, very strongly. Mm-hmm. Uh, this year, China is the only major country growing, but it's only growing at about 3%. Uh, next year, it's expected to be uh, somewhat stronger. But uh, uh, with uh, Europe uh, as weak as it is, um, a decline of something like twice that of the United States, 8%, and having a hard time getting the vaccines and and getting the disease under control. It's really important that developing countries and emerging markets have as strong a recovery as we can engineer. We have about a minute and a half, and then we'll take a break and come back and talk some more. But what what 
do we need to put in place in order for this to happen at this point? Is this just a case of developed government saying, listen, we've got to spend to help these developing economies get the vaccine there? Is it that the first big step that we have to do? And just get about a minute and then we'll come back and talk more. Sure. Health is obviously uh, the first order of business. Getting uh, vaccines, therapeutics, protective gear to the developing countries and emerging markets is absolutely necessary. There's a policy framework, though, that can help facilitate that, and that's a a temporary suspension on some of the intellectual property rights that pertain particularly to COVID-19. Meaning allow companies to reproduce vaccine and other technology so it can quickly be distributed? Absolutely. And, you know, they can pay a a, a, a license fee. It's not like you're uh, not compensating those who did the basic research. But remember, much of that research was funded by the public in the United States and in Europe. So uh, and the returns that have all that the vaccine companies have already uh, obtained or scheduled to obtain this year are you know look like they will be a enormous return on their private investments right so and a recurring investment potentially um, we did a great cover story on on Pfizer specifically so professor Stiglitz let's talk about your plan and the Institute for New Economic Thinking, this three-pronged strategy of helping the world in terms of getting beyond COVID and its impact. We've already talked about vaccines, that vaccines need to be made available for the developing world. You also, though, the other two prongs, economic recovery policies and debt management. Talk briefly about those. Well, uh, I mentioned earlier that the uh, fiscal space in the United States is just so much larger than these developing countries and emerging markets. They just don't have much, much, much they can do. So if there's the usual stance of too little debt restructuring done too late, what happens is these countries' growth gets so inhibited that, in fact, they aren't able to pay as much as they would be able to pay if you gave them more space right now. Well, it's no different than the conversations. Well, it is different. But I mean, what we've been talking about, massive stimulus here in the United States, that we don't want the economy to fall into such a slump that it's going to be much tougher to get out of, Tim. Yeah, the, the $1.9 trillion stimulus package, relief package, if you want to call it that, Professor Stiglitz, does that go far enough? What else do you want to see from the U.S. government? Well, uh, that was to get us out of the hole. Uh, But, you know, things weren't great in January 2019, uh, January 2020, when the the pandemic struck. Uh, We had huge infrastructure gaps. Uh, We had not addressed the problem of climate change. Uh, We have uh, huge problems of inequality, which have been both exposed and exaggerated by the pandemic. So uh, uh, once we are on, well on the road to recovery, it will be absolutely imperative that we start addressing those long-standing uh, needs if we're going to get a, a really robust and resilient uh, economy. So to me, this was just the first step, and uh, there, there needs to be a, a longer run uh, program put in place. What's a, what's a more effective policy in your view, Professor Stiglitz? Is it um, massive spending programs by the federal government, or is it increasing taxes and tax policy, especially as the president and his team are now talking about about prax, you know taxing the wealthier to provide uh, new revenue into the system? 
Well, I, I think that uh, we will be approaching uh, uh, closer to full employment. There still will be uh, uh, air, uh particular groups that are not fully integrated into the labor market, uh, and one of the reasons I'm a big fan of uh, having tight labor markets is the only time when you do that. But uh, as we approach full employment, uh, we have to make they have the resources to make those investments I talked about in infrastructure, education, R&D, mm-hmm. uh, address the problems of inequality. You're going to need more revenue. And the United States it has a distorted uh, tax system. Uh, we are one of the few countries where those at the very top pay a lower uh, overall tax rate than those uh, down below. Uh, can I just tell you, can I tell you one of the most read stories on the Bloomberg Professor Stiglitz is Jamie Dimon of J.P. Morgan, David Solomon of Goldman, uh, lots of other New York business leaders warning Governor Cuomo of New York that proposed tax hikes would risk the state's economic recovery and worsen the exodus of residents to lower tax locations. If you were in a room with Jamie Dimon and David Solomon, what would you say to them? Uh, that they're wrong. Uh, but, <laughs> but why? But, why are they it, it, wrong? Yeah, but, but there are two aspects of this. What we were talking about a minute ago was raising taxes at the national level. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's somewhat different than at the state level. There aren't many Americans who are so uh, disloyal that you raise their taxes and they say, I'm going to go live in Singapore. There are a few. Uh, but uh, those are exceptions, and we actually have an exit tax to discourage that kind of behavior. But I think most Americans, you know, value living in the United States, and so they're not going to just leave. Um, and that's why I'm not worried about raising the wealth, a wealth tax or getting rid of some of the distortions, the lower tax on capital gains, uh, the lower tax on dividends. Uh, why should a worker pay a higher tax rate than, than somebody who's clipping coupons? At the state level, we've done some research looking at uh, those effects. What happens if an individual state uh, raises their tax? And obviously, at some level, people will uh, move. I'm not going to deny that. But uh, the evidence is that the uh, migration is much less than uh, those who who are uh, raising those warnings uh, say. So, um, you know, one has to be mindful Mm. that people have a choice of where to live. And it's particularly true in, obviously, in in the New York area where you can live in New Jersey, Connecticut, or or New York State, and and, uh, it's not a big move. Um, New Jersey taxes are high, too. I live there. They're not, they're not, (laughs) (laughs) I'm just going to say. Yeah. (laughs) Listen, can we, can we talk Outlook with you? Because we'd be remiss if we didn't, uh, Tim and I, ask you about, when you look at the economic outlook, I mean, everybody's talking about a second half recovery. How does it look to you? Um, What's the economic story maybe later this year? How do you see it? I am very optimistic. I, I think as a result of that $1.9 trillion, we're going to have a, a, a strong uh, recovery. And I think most people see that. The Fed has talked about 6.5%. I gather Goldman Sachs has talked about 8% uh, growth rates. Um, you know, there's so much uncertainty. 
remember I, we were talking before about the global recovery is 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 very tenuous because Europe has had a slow vaccine rollout. The emerging markets mm-hmm. and developing countries uh, don't have the resources to have that kind of uh, stimulus that we've uh, had in the United States. So uh, all those obviously are going to affect the the overall strength of the U.S. recovery. But uh, basically, I'm uh, very optimistic. And if we can get some of the uh, second round, uh, uh, those investments in uh, infrastructure uh, 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 that I talked about before, right. climate change, then then I think uh, we're really set for a good. It's going to uh, be a tough sell in Washington, Professor. What is the message <laughs> that you would have to Republicans or to Democrats to convince them to get at the table together and, and get something through? And we only have about a minute left. Well, I, I think, remember, what we were talking about now is investment. And even if we have to borrow, the the fact is that uh, uh, anybody ought to be looking at this from the national balance sheet, and these investments strengthen our national balance sheet. But uh, in fact, uh, it, there are so many gaps in our tax structure that we we could have a more efficient and fairer tax structure that uh, we we. Uh, a mixture of borrowing and raising taxes, improving uh, environmental taxes, uh, would actually so benefit right. our economy and our growth uh, and our standards of living. Yeah. Just looking for also more equitable when it comes to all of these. Uh, Professor Stiglitz, thank you so much. Joseph Stiglitz, he's Nobel Laureate Economist of Court. Of course, professor of economics at Columbia University, and of course, uh, he is on the Commission on Global Economic Transformation at the Institute for New Economic Thinking. I'm driving in my car, I turn on the radio. Yeah, how about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive home. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That punk music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. It is time for the drive to the close. Just about 10 minutes left in today's trading session. Back with us is Kathy Boyle. She's president and founder of Chapin Hill Advisors. And she is once again on the phone in Pound Ridge, New York. Hi, Kathy. How are you? Hey, Carol. I'm just great. Delighted to be here. Carol and Tim. I know. My hosts move around. (laughs) This one's a keeper. We're going to keep them. Oh, thanks. For now. (laughs) For now. Um, Listen, uh, this market environment, I'm not quite sure. It feels like things are getting better. Um, There's certainly optimism about the second half. How do you see it? So I think that we are in, you know, look, the market could continue this craziness. You know, we just had the best 12 months in the S&P since 1936. Really hard to believe. Right. Right. But we've got, you know, I think people are underestimating the interest rate effect. You know, we certainly see it today with uh, small caps, right, down almost 4%. And look at the tech stocks, you know, the combination there, and there's a lot of concentration. I think people don't often look at things like the uh, overweight in their various positions. So they have money managers and mutual funds and ETFs, and very often they think they're diversified, but they have many of the same things. 
And then we do have this giant rebalancing going on here. It's supposed to be $316 billion worth of money that should flow out of other investments into uh, bonds to rebalance the portfolios. So where are you seeing opportunity right now? Um, well, I think there's certainly opportunity alternative things. I mean, gold and silver have both pulled back, and I think those are excellent inflation hedges, not for your entire, just for a hedge for a piece of your portfolio. I think you want to look at some long short portfolios, um, active managers like an AQR. Um, you know, those types of managers can hedge the bets. Um, I think you want to be very, very careful about uh, plain vanilla ETFs because people underestimate, again, the risk. There's no downside protection. You want to look back and look for managers that actually did well in more turbulent times because I think the easy money has been made. And I think this interest rate risk is much greater than many people recognize. Kathy, go back to the rebalancing that you were talking about. You're talking about what? Just the equity side of portfolios getting out of balance with the fixed income side, and that's why we'll see moves or, or explain it a little bit more. Yeah, so the numbers are pretty dramatic. You know, every quarter, um, you know, the 60 40 portfolios, mm -hmm. so 60% equities, 40% uh, bonds or fixed income, they need to rebalance to keep that. Uh, in line with their investment policy statement. So you'll see pension funds, which are a huge amount of money, any balanced mutual fund, and then certain banks uh, may have that kind of limitation, uh, insurance companies, um, and also the uh, Bank of uh, Japan's pension fund is a big one as well. So you combine those uh, big numbers and you're looking at, you know, 316 billion has to go into fixed income. So where does it come out of? It comes out of either your alternatives or your equities. A lot of it will be in traditional equities. So as the flow comes out short term, that can be a catalyst for a downturn in the market. Can the be, side. but not a guarantee, correct? Correct. If everything was easy and it repeated just like it did before, we'd have a much easier time mm -hmm. uh, managing our portfolios. Okay, so you mentioned gold and silver, but on the equity side, is there any opportunity there? So I think you're certainly seeing a huge rotation uh, from growth to value. So value has underperformed for a very long period of time. Um, so I think there is relative safety. Remember, when the markets go down, it takes all sectors down, but value will tend to um, hold up better. Uh, so you want to look there, some of the healthcare stocks, um, uh, pharmaceutical stocks, you know, certainly they're getting a boost from the vaccine and, um, you know, and some other developments. But I think, uh, you know, if you even the Russell 1000 value is up, um, I think it's up around 11% year to date, while the Russell large cap growth is slightly negative. You know, so that's a complete switch. Yeah, you know, going back to the 60-40 portfolio, you know the conversations that have happened over the last few months about, you know, kind of the, the death or <laughs> of the 60-40 portfolio um, because of performance. How do you think, though, that could ultimately impact uh, how people invest, especially among those institutional portfolios? Yeah, so I think that that's a good point, Carol. And, you know, a lot of the smaller pensions, and we've seen some of the foundations in the colleges, universities, some of those were the first ones to actually consider an alternative sleeve. Mm -hmm. um, the committees on the pension funds are often made up of, you know, very big you know, CEOs, CFOs, and they tend to be very, very afraid of being wrong. So they tend to move slower towards changing their allocation with a smaller or more, little more nimble and uh, more reflective. So I think, um, I think, you know, it depends on the alternative, um, 
uh, sleeve and whether yeah. or not like real estate right now is, an, is a, a dangerous game for most people mm-hmm. to play. Um, so that takes that's a typical alternative sleeve. So you might see more into the commodity market, which has been very beaten up, mm-hmm. um, or you may see more into the gold and silver, the specific, the right. metals. All right, we got to run. Hey, Kathy, have a good night. Kathy Boyle, she is president and founder of Chapin Hill Advisors. She's with us on the phone from Pound Ridge, New York. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Download the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. And you can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio or watch us on YouTube. Search Bloomberg Global News.